Section three of Gafantia by Charles Francois Tipchenia de la Roche. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter eleven The Mirror. As I was amusing myself with these broken speeches, the prefect of Gafantia presented me with a mirror. Thou canst only, says he, guess at things. But with thy rod and that glass, thou art going to hear and see both at once. Nothing will escape thee. Thou wilt be as present to whatever passes. From space to space, continued the prefect, there are in the atmosphere portions of air which the spirits have so ranged, and they receive the rays reflected from the different parts of the earth, and remit them to this mirror, so that by inclining the glass different ways, the several parts of the earth's surface will be visible on it. They will all appear one after the other, if the mirror is placed successively in all possible aspects. It is in thy power to view the habitations of every mortal. I hastily took up the wonderful glass. In less than a quarter of an hour I surveyed the whole earth. I perceived many void spaces, even in the most populous countries. And yet I saw men crowding, jostling, and destroying one another, as if they had wanted room. I looked about a good while for happiness, and found it nowhere, not even in the most flourishing kingdoms. I saw only some signs of it in the villages, which by their remoteness were screened from the contagion of the cities. I beheld in one view the vast countries which nature meant to separate by still vaster oceans and I saw men cover the sea with ships, and by that means join even these distant countries. This is plainly acting, said I, against nature's intentions. Such proceedings cannot be crowned with success. Accordingly, Europe does not appear more happy since her junction with America, and I do not know whether she has not more reason to lament it. I saw prejudices vary with the climates, and everywhere, do much good and much harm. I beheld wise nations rejoice at the birth of their children, and deplore the death of their relations and friends. I beheld others more wise stand round the newborn babe, and weep bitterly at the thoughts of the storms he was to undergo in the course of his life. They reserved their rejoicings for funerals, and congratulated the deceased upon their being delivered from the miseries of this world. I saw the earth covered with monuments of all kinds, which human weakness erects to the ambition of heroes. In the very temples, the brass and the marble, which contain the remains of the dead, present images of war, and breathe slaughter. The very statues of those friends of mankind, of those pacific sovereigns, whom the calamities of the time involve in short wars, are adorned with warlike instruments and nations in chains, as if laurels dyed in blood were only worthy to crown kings. I saw the most respectable of human propensities carry men to the strangest excesses. Some were addressing their prayers to the sun, others were employing the aid of the moon, and others prostrating themselves before mountains. One was trembling at the aspect of thundering Jove, another was bending the knee to an ape. The ox, the dog, the cat, had their altars. Incense was burning even to vegetables, 
grain beans and onions had their worship and votaries i saw the race of mankind divide themselves into as many parties as religions these parties i saw divest themselves of all humanity and clothe themselves with fanaticism and these fanatics worry one another like wild beasts i saw men who adored the same god who sacrificed upon the same altar who preached to the people the doctrine of peace and love i saw these very men fall out about unintelligible questions and mutually hate persecute and destroy one another o god what will become of man if thy goodness doth not exceed their weakness and folly in a word i saw the several nations diversified in a thousand respects all agree in their not being one better than another all men are bad the ultramontane by system the iberian by pride the batavian by interest the german by roughness the islander by humour the babylonian by caprice and all by a general corruption of heart chapter twelve the trial after this general survey of the whole earth i had a mind to view babylon in particular having turned my glass to the north and inclining it gently to the twentieth meridian i tried to find out that great city among the places that passed in succession under my eyes there was one that fixed my attention i saw a country house neither small nor great neither too much adorned nor too naked all about it was more embellished by nature than by art it overlooked gardens groves and some ponds which bounded a hill on the east a country feast was at this time celebrating to which all the neighboring inhabitants were come some stretched on the green turf were drinking large draughts and entertaining one another with their former amours and several were performing dances which the old men did not think so fine as those of time past seest thou says the prefect to me in the balcony that young lady who with a smiling air is viewing the sight she was married some days ago and it is on her account that this feast is made her name is sophia she has beauty as you see fortune wit and what is worth more than all the rest a stock of good sense she had five lovers at one time none made a deep impression in her heart none were displeasing to her she could not tell to which to give the preference one day she said to them i am young and it is not my intention to enter yet into the hands of matrimony which is always done too soon if my hand is so valuable as by your eager addresses you seem to think exert your endeavors to deserve it but i declare to you that i shall not make any choice these several years of sophia's five lovers the first was much inclined to extravagance women says he are taken with the outside let us spend freely and spare nothing the second had a fund of economy which bordered upon avarice sophia says he who has a solid judgment must think him best that shows himself capable of amassing riches let us turn to commerce the third was proud and haughty surely says he sophia who has noble thoughts will be touched with the lustre of glory let us take to arms the fourth was a studious man 
Sophia, says he, who has so much sense, will incline to where the most is to be found. Let us continue to cultivate our mind, and to strive to distinguish ourselves among the learned. The fifth was an indolent man, who gave himself little concern about worldly affairs. He was at a loss what course to take. Each pursued his plan, and pursued it with that ador which love alone is capable of inspiring. The prodigal expended part of his estate in clothes, in equipages, in domesticks. He built a fine house, furnished it nobly, kept open table, gave balls and entertainments of all kinds. Nothing was talked of but his generosity and magnificence. The merchant set all the springs of commerce in motion, traded to all parts of the world, and became one of the richest men of his country. The military man sought occasions, and soon signalized himself. The studious man redoubled his efforts, made discoveries, and became famous. Meanwhile, the indolent lover made his reflections, and believing if he remained unactive, he should be excluded. He strove to conquer his indolence. The estate he had from his ancestors seemed to him very sufficient, and he did not care to meddle with commerce. The hurry of war was quite opposite to his temper, and he had no mind to take arms. He had never read but for his amusement. The sciences did not seem to him worth the pains to come at them. He had no ambition to become learned. What, then, is to be done? Let us wait, says he, time will show. So he remained at his country house, pruning his trees, reading Horace, and now and then going to see the only object that disturbed his tranquillity. Ever resolving to take some course, the time slipped away, and he took none. The fatal hour approaches, said he sometimes to Sophia. You are going to make your choice, and most assuredly it will not be in my favor. Yet a few days, and I am undone. This peaceful retreat, those delightful fields you will not grace, you will not enliven with your presence. Those serene days that I reckoned to pass with you in the purest of pleasures were only flattering dreams with which love charmed my senses. O oh, Sophia, all that stirs the passions and troubles, the repose of men has no power over me. My desires are all centered in you, and I am going to lose you forever. You are too reasonable, replied Sophia, to take it ill that I should choose where I think I shall be happy. At last the time was expired, and not without many reflections, Sophia resolved to make her choice. She said to the prodigal, if I have been the aim of your expenses, I am sorry for it, but what you have done for my sake you would have done had I been out of the question. You have lavished away one part of your estate to obtain a wife. You would spend the other to avoid the trouble of management. I advise you never to think of it. She told the merchant, soldier, and scholar, I am sensible. You have shown a great regard for me but I think, too, you have shown no less. You for riches, you for glory, and you for learning. In trying to fix my inclination, each has followed his own. Each would do as much for himself as for me. Should I choose one of you, his views would still rest upon the other objects. One would be busied with increasing his fortune, 
the other with his promotion in the army, and the third with his progress in the sciences. I cannot therefore satisfy any one of you, and my desire is to engross the heart of the man who engrosses mine. The same day she saw the solitary gentleman. You have long waited for it, said she to him, and I am at last going to declare my mind. You know what your rifles have done to obtain my consent. See what they were and what they are. For your part, such as you was, such you remain. I think I see the reason. Indifferent to all other things, you have but one passion, and I am its object. I alone can render you happy. Well, then, my happiness shall be in creating yours. I will share the delights of your solitude, and will endeavor to increase them. CHAPTER Thirteen: THE TALENTS I returned to my first object, and, after a long search, I perceived on the mirror a spot of land which seemed wrapped in a cloud. There issued from thence a confused noise like the murmurs of an ebbing tide. The sun quickly dispersed the vapors, and I saw Babylon. I saw there spectacles wherein the calamities of past times are lamented, in order to forget the calamities of the present. I saw academies where they should examine and discuss, but where they dispute and quarrel, temples that were built against the restoration of religion, orators who foretell to the seduced people the most terrible disasters, and hearers who measure the expressions and criticize the style. A palace wherein are placed magistrates for the security of your property, and where you are conducted by guides who fleece you. I cast my eyes on the public walks and gardens, ever open to idleness, coquetry, and recreation. I beheld sitting alone on the grass a person who, with a smile, was penning down his ideas. I fixed the paper and read what follows. One day Jupiter proclaimed through the whole earth that he had resolved to distribute different talents to the different nations, that on such a day the distribution would be made at Olympus, and that the geniuses of the several nations should repair thither. The genius of Babylon stayed not till the day appointed, but came the first of all to Jupiter's palace. He made his appearance with that air of confidence which is natural to him. He uttered I not know how many very handsome and well-turned compliments, and made presents to all the celestial court with the grace peculiar to him. He gave the father of the gods a quintal of wildfire of a late invention, that his thunder may be more effectual, and people begin to have faith. To Apollo, a Babylonian grammar, that he may reform the oddities of the language. To Minerva, a collection of romances, that she may correct their licentiousness and teach the romancers to write decently. To Venus, two small votive pictures, to thank her for that the last year there were at Babylon but two hundred thousand inhabitants who bore the long and painful marks of her favors. He made his court to the gods, wheedled the goddesses, said and did so many handsome and pleasant things, that nothing was talked of at Jupiter's court but the agreeableness of the genius of Babylon. Meanwhile, the day appointed was come, and Jupiter, 
having advised with his counsel, made the distribution of the different talents to the geniuses of the several nations. To this he assigned the gift of philosophy, to that the gift of legislation, and to another the gift of eloquence. He said to one, Be thou the most ingenious, to another, Be thou most learned, and thou the most frugal, and thou the most warlike, and thou the most politic, and be thou, said he, speaking to the genius of Babylon, whatever thou choosest to be. Delighted with his success, and returning home, the genius of Babylon is at all. He framed I know not how many schemes, and executed none. He made most excellent laws, and afterwards embroiled them with numberless explanations and comments. He would likewise turn theologist, and engage in disputes which proved fatal to him. He traded, gained much, enlarged his expenses, and became richer and less easy. Orator, poet, merchant, philosopher, he was everything, and in many things he attained to perfection, but never could keep his ground. CHAPTER Fourteen: THE TASTE OF THE AGE Two men of letters were walking at a little distance. "'Will you not own,' said one of them, "'that, two centuries ago, our learning was in its infancy, "'and hardly showed to what degree it might arrive. "'In the last century it took root and rose so high "'that nothing was seen above it. "'The greatest masters among the Greeks and Latins "'were taken for patterns.' they were equalled if not surpassed success inspires confidence and too much confidence breeds neglect to have the eye always on the antients grew distasteful they have had their merit said the babylonians and we have ours who can say we do not equal them they therefore set up for themselves and the taste not the more general and of all the nations but the taste peculiar to them characterized their works. See almost all our poems, our histories, our speeches, our books, all is after the Babylonian mode. Much of the art, little of nature, a vast superficies, no depth, all is florid, light, lively, sparkling, all is pretty, nothing is fine. Methinks I foresee the judgment of posterity, they will consider the works of the seventeenth century as the greatest efforts of the nation towards the excellent, and the works of the eighteenth as pictures wherein the Babylonians have taken pleasure to paint themselves. If our writers are capable to go back and resume their great patterns, it is known what they can do. They are sure to please all the world, and forever, but if they continue to stand on their own bottom, their works will be only trinkets of fancy, on which the present taste stamps a value, and which another taste will soon bury in oblivion. End of section 3